it's made its way to Ontario is having auctions for rental housing properties related to students where the landlords will post that they've got a house. They'll say, everybody come over at whatever, 2 p.m. on a Saturday. They'll literally have them in the front yard and say, okay, who's bidding what? Let's start the bidding at $1,500 a month for this. Hello and welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the folks who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. I'm also the CEO of Student Housing Insight. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you want to find out more information about SHI, because you know we're not just a podcast, but rather a platform for industry professionals to learn, be informed, and network so we can all simply make student housing better. You can find out more information by going to studenthousinginsight.com. Well, guys, by the time this podcast comes out, we should be done with the Interface Student Housing Conference in Austin. I hope if you were there, we got a chance to connect. We also hosted a luncheon and we recorded a live podcast, which that should be out shortly. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I wanted to put something out for our Canadian audience and provide a preview episode of an upcoming conference in Vancouver that will be happening later this month, April 19th and 20th. It's the Student Housing and University Real Estate Initiative, or for short, it's called the SURE Initiative. I recently got to sit down with the conference's host, Brian Klebosh, as well as Mike Port, who's the VP of International Advisory Services for the Scion Group. He's been on the podcast several times before, as well as Andrew Parr, who is the Associate VP of Student Housing and Community Services at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. UBC is also the host venue for the conference. And I got to tell you, I'm a bit bummed that I won't be attending this conference. I've yet to visit Vancouver, and I hear it's not only a beautiful city, but a very friendly city but I don't think I've ever met anybody from Canada who isn't friendly. So (laughs) that's uh, par for the course, I guess. But anyway, I wanted to get this out to kind of give everyone a sense of what's happening in Canada, not just from the standpoint of what's happening with this conference, but just overall kind of what's happening. So, all right, so let's go ahead and cut to this interview. Well, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. How's everyone doing? Great. Good to see you today. Very good. Great. Good to see you. Yeah. Well, Brian, good to see you. You know, you've been doing student housing conferences for a couple of decades now. <laughs> and no stranger to this sector at all. But I think this is the first time I've had you on the podcast, isn't it? It is. And it's a true delight to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast, by the way. Well, I appreciate it. Really quick, you've got a couple of gentlemen that you want to introduce, but for those that may not know about about yourself, about CAPRE, and of course, this new venture, Sure, that we're going to talk about, go ahead and and give us the background on that. Yeah. So the Sure Initiative is a new platform for media membership and events on student housing, university real estate at a global level. I've been in this space since 2006, the B2B business space. So I'm going on 17 years of being in this industry. We found a unique demand, if you will, for information, networking, membership on a global level for the student housing and university real estate space. And it came together as SHORE, the Student Housing University Real Estate Initiative, 
we felt we could do something a bit different here in the market by positioning this as an initiative with a mission statement. And our mission statement is to improve student lives and enhance the built environment in university neighborhoods. We're focused on Love it. three key regions, Canada, the EU, and then the Indo-Pacific region. That's our initial focus. We had been active in Canada for a few years and yeah. post pandemic, we found that the marketplace in Canada changed quite a bit due to a surge in student enrollment and also a surge in general immigration to Canada. So on the other side of the pandemic, we found a housing crisis in Canada and our event at that time met a unique demand of providing information and facilitation of networking for folks. So over the past several months, this has developed into the Shore Initiative. So we're really excited about the Shore Initiative. We're branding it just as the Shore Initiative and not using our Kappa rename as well. That's another side note. But the plans are to have membership, news, information, events in Western Canada, and then Toronto. We plan to be in the EU, in Zurich, with an event this fall. And we're looking nice. at Tokyo as well. Very cool. This has actually been growing more than I thought it could have. And we're getting a tremendous response from everyone, from university officials to private student housing executives and even the government in Canada this time around. So I think people like what we're doing. I think we stumbled into a new platform, Wes, and we're just going to keep growing this as much as we can. Well, great. Well, I'll have, I'll have you introduce your two other guests here that are a big part of this. One of those is not a stranger to the podcast with Mike from Scion, but go ahead. I'll let you make the introductions. Right. So we're joined today by two folks who will be participating in Shore Vancouver. Andrew Parr is the Associate Vice President at the University of British Columbia. Andrew and I started to work together, I think, in 2020, but we're preempted by COVID and we have actually not met yet. So I think I'll be meeting Andrew in person for the first time next month. And Dr. Mike Port is a VP of International Business at the Scion Group Advisory Services. So Andrew is in Vancouver. Mike is in the greater Toronto area. And both of these gentlemen have been wonderful to work with in growing our platform in Canada, both very progressive, very innovative, two of the smartest folks I know in the industry. You need to meet more people, Brian. <laughs> Putting us at a high standard there. <laughs> Mike, if you would, and again, welcome back to the podcast. We've had you on here before and you've been at a couple of our live events and we've taken some recordings from that and used them on the podcast before as well. And thanks for everything that you've done with us in the past from that standpoint. But if you would describe a little bit for our audience, I mean, we do have a big group from Canada listens to us every single episode. It's not quite as big as it is here in the U.S., but I think for those who don't know about the Canadian market and what's happening there, can you give a little bit of, a, of an overview so we can catch them up to date? Canada as a whole country has been facing a housing crisis for a while now. And it's not even just the usual what you hear about an affordable housing crisis. It's just there's just flat out not enough housing at any level in most of the country right now, and especially the bigger cities. And the bigger cities in Canada is where our universities are. Not just the flagship universities like Andrew at UBC in Vancouver, but also there's several of the regional universities that are also in the big cities. So I believe it's um, 12 of our U15, which is the U15 is our big research one institutions are in the 10 biggest cities in Canada. So when there's a housing crisis in the city, there's a housing crisis for the students because not all the students live on campus. 
Our campuses have been trying to make arrangements. We're incredibly busy doing consulting jobs all over the country now to try to help figure out what demand is for new houses on campus, potential partnerships, et cetera, for both the colleges and the universities. And that differential between colleges and universities is one thing that makes Canada unique and also has quite a bit of implication for the housing market. Because universities and colleges in Canada, they're not interchangeable words. If you're going to college in Canada, you're going to what in the States would be like a community college or a polytechnic. Right. They're fantastic schools for what they do, but it's different than the universities. The universities have a different mission. And that has impacts with the students because we're dominated with uh, huge populations of international students coming in right now, which is great for the overall business of universities and colleges. But that population has really shifted. And so the population is now, of our international students coming in, it's now 40% students from India as of the 2022 data. And the Chinese students have dropped 12%. And 10, 12 years ago, China was closer to 30 and India was closer to 10, to give you an idea of that shift. And students from India come with 10 times less money than the students from China did. And so the implications for that in housing is they simply can't afford the kind of housing that was traditionally put up, both by the campuses and off campus. So working with the students and the colleges and the universities to figure out ways that we can design student housing that's both financially feasible, whether it's on campus or off campus, but also something that the students can afford and get the most out of, which a lot of times means higher density, shared rooms and things like that. And the students actually have asked for that even up to the graduate level. So that's been a big shift in terms of the housing crisis. And then the other big deal is that BC has been probably the most progressive government in this, in supporting the universities and the colleges with low interest loans and occasionally grants and freeing up a little bit of the flexibility in public-private partnerships to get more housing on campus. Because the basic equation is every student you put on campus gives a bed to that student, but it also frees up a bed in the city. And then that helps the city out too. Great. I want to go back to something you mentioned there a little bit about international students and park it there for just a quick second, because you and I have had conversations about international modality and how that is changing both through the pandemic and also with geopolitical reasons behind it as well. Can you kind of give us a little bit of update on, I don't know if you've got numbers in front of you that you can use or some stats that you're familiar with, but... Can you give us a little bit of idea of what the outlook is looking like for international students over the next five years coming to Canada? Yeah, I was actually just doing a report about this yesterday and the 2022 stats just came out a few weeks ago. So we have right now in the college population, we have a total college population of a, a little under 800,000 students, almost 250,000 of them are international students. Wow. And of that population, it's close to 65% that are from India, which is a really weird situation to be in, to be so reliant on one particular country. But in general, we have good relationships with India and they don't have a big enough higher education system to keep their folks. Yeah, And we also have a large Indo-Canadian population in Canada too. So they have lots of family and friends here. So that's the biggest shift. And even in the, at the university level, it's not quite as extreme towards any particular country, although India is the leading country. And China is dropping, but the Philippines, Brazil, and Nigeria are all pretty quick risers as well. And we've seen a big increase in students from the Ukraine related to, to refugees and fleeing Ukraine to come to Canada. Okay. okay. Um, but the, the biggest difference for those listening in the States, Canada in 2022 had more than 800,000 international students. As a gross number, that's almost as many as the United States. And the U.S. has 10 times the population. 
And within a handful of years, we'll have more international students in Canada as a country of less than 40 million than the U.S. does as a country of probably close to 370 million by that time. So we're very reliant on the international students, but their demographic has shifted quite a bit. And that's happening now and going to be a big adjustment in student housing. There's huge demand, but it's not the same. It's not demand for the same type of thing that it used to be. And that's what we have to do. There's a even a bigger crisis in the UK, and plus the UK isn't having the demographic fall off that we're having with Gen Z here in the states. And so, the UK used to be a big importer and still is of Indian students. And so, I've got to imagine the pressures that the universities and and the UK are getting are probably pushing a lot of those Indian students to Canada and the U.S. as well, and certainly Australia. There's one more thing I could add that I forgot. The other part that draws a lot of students international to us is if they complete two years of studies and get their diploma certificate or degree, if they go to a a four-year institution, they can apply for a work permit that's good for three years. And the stats from last year were 74% of incoming international students intended to stay to apply for a work permit and 64% intended to apply for permanent residency. We have very immigration-friendly international student policies, and that's all also driving a lot of students to Canada. And Australia sees the same thing because they have very similar yeah. policies as well. That's why there's a lot of drive of international students to Canada and Australia. And we also have very good schools. Yeah, UBC, where Andrew is, is regularly in the top 25 in the world. And if you take out the privates, UBC is probably in the top at least top 10, if not even higher. McGill, where I used to work in University of Toronto, they're always in the, the top 40 or 50. And I think we've got nine or 10 now in the top 200. So the quality of education is also super high. And I'd like to think we're a pretty friendly country too. Can I just jump in with a quick comment? Um, first of all, everything that Mike says resonates so much with me. Like we're everything you say there is conversations we're having at UBC and and challenges that we're, that we're realizing at UBC. But the uh, comment, Mike, about the uh, number of international students coming in from many different countries around the world is very true here. And I think what that means in the context of student housing is universities and colleges have a responsibility to develop student housing. Um, we're inviting these students to come. There's so many of them that's actually impacting the housing crisis in, in Canada. The number of international students that come that need shelter is impacting other people, other Canadians and other immigrants and whatnot to have access to shelter. I think there's actually a responsibility that universities have that if you're inviting international students at the rate we are inviting international students to come to Canada for their education, that we have a responsibility to provide shelter to them as well and help support or reduce the crisis that we are facing in Canada. Well, Andrew, what's your opinion on how much the private sector is going to have to be able to partner with universities to make that happen? Are most of the universities in Canada looking to the private sector to help with that? Or is that something that the universities are trying to figure out within their own budgets? It's a very good question. It's an interesting question for me to answer because UBC is very independent in terms of developing its lands and student housing. And we don't have any partnerships really uh, at this point. But that said, that's my experience, I think is absolutely essential. And we're seeing increased opportunities. And I'm sure the SURE event is going to expose a lot of those opportunities and make some some really helpful connections for uh, independents and third-party operators and developers that, that maybe are developing other types of housing to get into or look at opportunities to get into purpose-built student housing and partner with universities and colleges across the country and you know across the United States as well to support this challenge, I think, that we're facing. 
Yeah. Mike and Brian, you guys are a little bit more familiar with the P3 process in the US. And of course, there's bond ratings and things that have to go behind it. A lot of reasons that the universities look to do that. A lot of times you'll see a 501c3 created separate from the university. Is that process very different in Canada when it comes to P3? Or if there's a developer in the States right now that is kind of scratching their head saying, maybe Canada makes sense. What kind of differences could they see in that process? I'll let Brian talk in a bit about the campuses with land trusts and trusts focused on construction because he probably knows more about that than anybody. The 501c3 is a U.S. tax foundation related to the campus, things like that. Obviously, if it's a U.S. tax thing, we don't have 501c3s. We do have some things that are similar in general principle, but the evolution of P3 deals in Canada has been really interesting. Several of the colleges in Ontario did P3s on a basic land lease. Developer came in, put up the building, ran the building for the college. And Bob Drunkle, it was a relatively simple deal. The colleges wanted housing and they got housing. And those deals were good for what they were. Mm-hmm. were done at a time when there really was only about one company that could do it anyways. And there wasn't a lot of experience in doing those kinds of things. But that has since changed. Now there's several companies that do those kinds of works in Canada. So the flexibility of the deals is quite a bit different. The investment into them is quite a bit different. Some of the universities or colleges that do them are quite invested in the project. It's no longer a simple of, okay, we'll rent you a chunk of land over here. Do your thing because we need beds for students. Although that can be a solution on some campuses because maybe for a certain population, that's all they want. But when they want to focus on the first year housing, we do have those arrangements now with developers and universities and colleges where the institution keeps the student life and admissions part but the developer is providing the funding. And then maybe there's a partnership on investment or there's a revenue share above a certain occupancy point, but the deals are starting to grow in their complexity and their true partnership level. And I think that's a good thing. People have been paying attention to how the deals have evolved in the States. Note the ones that work the best. Note the ones where there were maybe some failures and why those failures happened to try to prevent them from coming up here. It's still evolving. We're, we're nowhere near the point where anywhere near the expertise and the complexities of the States in general. But those deals, um, mixed-use facilities, for instance, there's now two of them that have been completed and running a couple of years. One's at Toronto Metro University, where there's seven floors of a faculty of nursing and health sciences with student housing on top. And Centennial College on the outside of Toronto, that's got four floors of their hospitality and culinary arts, as well as uh, really, really fancy cooking classrooms and everything else. And the students in that program run the dining hall and the conference center. And then there's 700 students on top of that. So those deals are starting to come up now. And that's good, especially for the urban schools that are very limited on footprint. The mixed use deals are looking more attractive because they don't have, nobody has as much space as Andrew. So they don't have a place to put things all the time. Just real quick, Brian, what's kind of the typical timeline for a development in Canada? Is it much different than here in the States? Pretty similar in general from the time you say go, whether you do it as a P3 or whether you do it as a design build on campus, you're typically looking at approximately two and a half to three years depending on the size and scope of the building. But um, I'll let Andrew speak to the trust because there's a few other schools using that style as well. And Andrew's been responsible for building several buildings recently. So he can very much talk directly about the timelines and construction issues too. Thanks, Mike. I wish we were two and a half to three years from go to occupancy. We're probably more in the 48 to 54 month range. And that's a little longer than it was before, but probably only six months longer than it was, say, 10 years ago. And that's largely to do with each site we build on at UBC is getting a little bit more complex. We do have a lot of land. We're about 1,000 acres, and many of that land is is sort of not the academic core. It's the neighborhood development. 
And we're building student housing both within the academic core and in the neighborhoods. But we have our own internal, basically, municipality process. So uh, the approvals are done internally, but they're still very robust. So we have to go through the design process, a six-step approval process between our executive and our board of governors, and then the the construction process and and occupancy. So that's that's what a 48-month, 54-month, in a worst case scenario kind of a timeline right now. Gotcha. Is it that way both on residential as well as academic buildings? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a little longer on the academic side and and, and really? student housing. They, yeah, it could be a little quicker in the neighborhoods where they're... So in the, in the neighborhoods, we got back up a little bit. UBC has an arm's length entity called UBC Properties Trust, which is our development entity. It's owned exclusively by UBC and its core purpose is to deliver service back to UBC and develop these neighborhood lands around the university academic core. And in that, they're building all types of housing. So there's market housing at you know, full market rates. There's uh, market rental housing. And then we have a number of initiatives around student, faculty, and staff housing that are discounted in some way. And that's really gotcha. to address the issues that we've talked about earlier around the housing crisis, allowing for um, recruitment and retention of you know, high-quality professors and, and staff and students to UBC and, and giving them housing and shelter at a, at a rate that's affordable to them. Mike was talking about the housing crisis earlier. It is across the the country and it is mostly in the large metropolitan centers. And I would say Vancouver is probably at the top of that, slightly ahead of Toronto. A one bedroom right now in an old, say, three-story walk-up is probably in the $2,000 range per month to rent, for example. A three-bedroom, $5,000 a month, newer would be even more than that. So affordability for students is a really huge challenge as well. So not only attracting these international and domestic students to UBC, but then, you know, giving them shelter that they can afford during their academic pursuits is a critical part of our thinking right now. Mike, I know when, and Brian, I want to come back to you on that other topic we're about to jump into, but just really quick. I remember five, six years ago when I was doing some consulting in Canada, there was, uh, there were rent caps that had been put in place in certain areas of Toronto that was a really hot topic. Are we seeing that beyond Toronto now? Is Vancouver dealing with that as well? I'll speak to Ontario first, and I'll let Andrew talk to Vancouver. There's a government that's come in like the last five years or so in Ontario, and they've largely taken away the rent cap issue for anything newer than 2018, which okay. has made the affordability crisis basically go on steroids. There's always been a process where once you've got a place, as long as you stay in it, it's restricted how much the rent can increase each year. And that's usually ends up being somewhere between a, a 1% and 2% unless they're doing significant things. Something that's been pretty controversial here, and I'm sure it's out West too, is um, a rental eviction where the landlord will, will say, well, we're doing significant renovations, so you've got to get out and we're repurposing the building. And then the, the repurposing and retrofitting of the apartments leads to a rent that gets justified at being 10, 20 percent higher than what it originally was. And that person who was put out, that new rent gets approved because of the improvements and that person can never get back in again. Yeah. Uh, so that's becoming a common thing. And then the other affordability one, I know this is in Vancouver and it's it's made its way to Ontario, is having auctions for rental housing properties related to students where the landlords will post that they've got a house. They'll say, everybody come over at whatever 2 p.m. on a Saturday. They'll literally have them in the front yard and say, okay, who's bidding what? Let's start the bidding at $1,500 a month for this two bedroom and then it'll just go up and up until people stop bidding. And then that's who gets the lease. Wow. So Mike, you alluded a little bit ago that you, you wanted Brian to talk about the property trust and Andrew kind of touched on it there a little bit. 
Brian, if you will, let's jump into that because I think we need to go into that a little bit more deeply because to me, it sounds a lot like a real estate foundation that a university in the States may have, but I think it's a little bit deeper than that. Can you start to explain? I know Andrew's got some points he could add to that as well. Right, you're right. And this is where the U insurer comes into play. Universities are often the largest property owners in municipalities boasting a robust portfolio of office buildings, classrooms, athletic, and other ancillary buildings. So what we're finding with Shore is that universities such as UBC or University of Toronto in Toronto are very progressive, very inclusive with their master planning and their strategy that is welcoming faculty, staff, students, and the general public. There are other universities that are less progressive with their real estate, more focused on the core academic mission and starting to come around to recognizing the value of their real estate and how that can monetize and bring value to the university. So each university or college has its own real estate operating entity. In most cases in Canada, it's a real estate property trust at the direction of the board and the overall university. So I defer to you on this. I, I think your story and your campus vision 2050 is quite interesting. I, I think, you know, for the folks watching this, understanding that, you know, UBC has a significant portion of land in Vancouver, how many buildings, how many square feet, and just describe the plans and how inclusive it is in terms of the types of buildings. I mean, you've got four market residential, you're a city within a city in, in short. And it's a very inclusive, very progressive plan. I think the audience even can convey that to the audience. Yeah, a, a city within a city is probably a good way to describe it. So UBC is made up of about a thousand acres. It's on a peninsula. On that thousand acres, a large chunk of that is actually designed as what we're calling neighborhood lands. It's not part of the academic core. It doesn't have academic buildings and whatnot. It's actually neighborhood developments. And those neighborhood developments, as you say, Brian, are, um, are whole communities where we have a mix of market rental uh, market sale, condos, and that, that type of development, townhouses, and then purpose-built student housing and faculty and staff housing that's actually built with a discounted rent and other incentives to, you know, to as a really as an attraction tool to UBC for faculty and staff to be attracted to work at UBC and, and come to Vancouver, which is a very, as we've talked about before, a very expensive marketplace. And, and one of the reasons we don't attract actually quality, you know, say faculty, staff, and students is because it's too expensive to come here. They'd like to come here. They'd like to be a part of UBC, but they decide to go somewhere else because they can't afford to come to UBC. Not from a tuition yeah. perspective, but from a shelter, you know, food, childcare perspective, those yeah. kind of things, things that are really important to families. So we're really trying to build out these whole communities where we have childcare facilities. We have all of the amenities that support an individual or a family, grocery stores, restaurants, doctor's offices, um, all those services are, are available and, and creating these whole communities. That work is done by UBC Properties Trust on behalf of UBC. And the proceeds that are generated from that become part of an endowment at UBC. And we're borrowing from that endowment to build our student housing. Okay. Is the property trust owning that real estate the entire time? Or is there you know, a potential plan for that to be deeded over to the university entity? Yeah, great, great question. All of that land exclusively is developed in long-term leases. So UBC is not gotcha. giving up ownership of the land. I will make a comment about ownership of okay. land too, because I think this is really important as uh, UBC is situated on the unceded ancestral and traditional territory of, of Musqueam First Nations. And we have a very close relationship with our Musqueam colleagues. So we're really, I would say, privileged or blessed to be able to develop and utilize 
this incredible land that we're sitting on, but it is in partnership with our First Nations partners, in this case, Musqueam. Great. Can I jump on something that Mike said earlier? We were talking about sort of rent and rent caps and that kind of thing. I've got some interesting numbers that I, I think the listeners might be interested in. The rent cap in British Columbia, the maximum rental increase for a turnover or for a resident that you know, is continuing in that unit is 2%. So Mike was talking about 1% or 2%. That's right in that range of, of 2%. And that's established by the government. But the rent eviction and other ways of forcing tenants out of a unit and then doing a minor renovation is a strategy that many landlords are using. Last year on turnover units in Vancouver, the increase was 27% for the same unit, meaning that the average increase in rent in the lower mainland was 11% last year. So even though there's that cap of two, rents went up on average by 11% and turnovers went up by 27%. And I think that's an important number because first of all, that's just unsustainable continuing increase of those kind of numbers. But secondly, it actually causes perhaps a challenge and an opportunity for student housing operators. And the, the challenge is that we want to stay below the marketplace, but we don't want to have too much wide a gap between the market and our rents. And we can't put it an 11 or 27% fee increase there. So we're seeing a widening gap between our rents and the rents in the marketplace. That's positive in a way. We're offering lower rents for students, but it also puts a huge demand on students wanting to live in student housing at a much higher rate. So our, our demand, we've added 5,555 beds in the last 10 years, and our wait list has tripled. It's gone from 3,000 students yeah. a year at the summer sort of peak to 9,000 students a year. So while we're doing well at growing our student housing stock and allowing some more students to live on campus, we're actually falling short of demand by quite a significant amount. And that's because of what's happening in the marketplace. So Mike, I'm going to put my asset manager hat on here for a second <laughs> and or you know, operators because I've seen operators typically when they're dealing with some type of rent control, they find a way around it if the market will allow for it. So either, yeah, they, they'll bring up that 2%, but they'll, there'll be some other kind of fee that they work in. Is a lot of that happening in these areas or is everybody trying to play within the bounds of what's been set by the provinces? <laughs> the nature of student housing, every time one student moves out, then you can change the rent. And there's not too much limitation on that outside of the market and just your general willingness to recognize that if you go too high, you're not going to get any more students because you just run out of students that can afford to pay it. But when the lease changes to a new student in the professionally managed purpose-built student housing things, that is a chance where they can raise the rate. If that student stays, then they're subject to that, whatever the particular province is, what their limitations are, 2% or less usually. But as soon as they move out, then they can change it. So are they making move outs mandatory then? <laughs> not yet, because most of them still like the idea of keeping students. And, and plus, they know they're not probably not going to get a student that stays with them beyond three years because they usually lived on campus their first year in a university market. Probably you're not going to get them beyond three years. Yeah. Let me ask this question. How does that work with because, you know, we deal with a lot of transfers in student housing between academic years. Does that transfer count as a move out as far as that's concerned? If it's off campus, it's a new person. So unless okay. they figured out a way to just transfer a lease within a year, which sometimes can happen, yeah. then that student is a new student and they can raise the rate if they want to. They often won't do it in the middle of a year, but just yeah. for, for the hassle of bookkeeping. 
but they would be able to. Great, great. Andrew, are you guys on a quarter system or semester system? Semester. The big academic terms are September to December and then January to April. We have a fairly strong summer program as well. So we have a lot of year-round housing. In fact, 6,000 of our beds are on contract students that live with us on a 12-month basis. That really helps the performer as well. One of the challenges of student housing, whether you're an in-house operator or third party, is that students often want those spaces for only eight months of the year. And uh, either you have to charge a premium for that or you're sitting with no revenue for four months. So we've a lot of our development recently has been on 12-month contracts. That was hard to sell at first to students. Now, actually, they, they love it. Our wait list is longer for year-round housing than it is for winter session housing because they know they have stable housing for as long as they want it. And to the point earlier around international students, we, are, we know our international students, there's a one-to-one ratio. Every international student that comes to UBC for their first year wants to live in student housing. And 75% of them, probably more now, but 75% in the last study we did indicated that they want to live in student housing for the duration of their studies, whether that be you know the next three years or five or eight years or whatever that might be. Yeah. So that's putting pressure not just on that first year experience that we many universities focus on, but actually offering upper year and graduate housing as well. And we're, we're trying to meet that objective. Great. I want to get to Brian a little bit more on the SURE initiative and some things that are specifically planned out for this conference. Andrew, I know we've got kind of a time crunch here, so I want to be cognitive of that. And is there anything else before you go that you want to share with the audience as it relates to Canada and, and what you guys are experiencing specifically at UBC? I could just touch on something that we're going to delve into a little bit more and share at, at, at Sure, which is the process that we're undertaking right now at UBC called Campus Vision 2050, which is a, a long-term planning process for what this institution looks like, both the academic side of the house, but also the neighborhoods and the development, you know, housing development and whatnot over the next 30 years. What do we want to look like? What does UBC want to accomplish in the next 30 years? Looking at things like rapid transit to campus, which we currently don't have, a variety of different types of housing, what the academic mission is and what kind of investments we want need to make in the academic world. All of that's being considered. And there's a, a significant engagement, community engagement process that's underway around that. And what we've heard remarkably, actually, almost exclusively, is that access to affordable shelter is the number one issue for faculty, staff, and students uh, ahead of anything to do with sort of thinking about the academic mission. So one of the debates UBC is facing right now is, is the development of housing actually supporting the is it is it superseding the academic mission? Is it, yeah. is it supporting the academic mission? We some academics will argue it's we're, we're investing in housing, and we're not investing in the academic mission. I think most people are arguing that access to housing that allows for faculty, staff, and students to be successful is supporting the academic mission. So that's kind of where we're at right now with that. But it's really remarkable that engagement through this process is focusing almost exclusively from anyone that's involved, anyone in the community that's engaged with this, is focusing on the issue around housing. So it really emphasizes how much of a crisis it is and how important it is for universities like UBC and others to think about and invest in housing to be successful and to be successful into the future. Great. I hope you can stay on for just a little bit longer, but I know you've got to get um, Six across minutes. that. Thousand acre campus. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wes. Yeah, thank you, Brian. A little bit. Could you just you know we'll make sure we've got a link and everything in the um, in the show notes where they can register. But can you give the audience a little bit of background on who should be attending, what the dates are, and what to expect? I don't know if you've got 
room rates worked out with local hotels or anything like that. But can you share a little bit on that? Yes. Well, so all very good questions. The event, it's a two-day event. It's actually, there's a third day bolt-on, which UBC is hosting as well, but opening act is April 19th. It's an event, we call it CapTech, Canada Property Technology Exchange. The first day, a single track event about property technology with the thesis that technology is improving and enhancing landlords' experience in the operating environment. And on the flip side of that, the tenant experience. So day one, April 19th, all about property technology that is in, in some way touching the experience of the owners and managers and operators and then the, the tenants. That's one track. We have entertainment on the night of the 19th. The 20th is the main event. We have two tracks concurrently. We have the university real estate track, which will cover all types of activity happening on campus from retail to building affordable housing, to academic buildings, P3s. Then the second track on the 20th is housing for student accommodation. We get into discussions about raising capital, investing in off-campus student housing or entertaining partnerships on campus. Andrew, you might want to touch on the 21st. UBC is hosting its own private event as a bolt-on on the morning of Friday the 21st. So sure is the 19th and 20th. We're encouraging our folks to stay an extra day the 21st because uh, UBC is having its own uh, private workshop. Andrew, I, I don't know if you want to mention that as well. Yeah, we're actually, we do a lot of work with the provincial government on student housing and Mike touched on that earlier. Our government has invested $100 million into student housing in, uh, in the last uh, seven, eight years or so. And we've been really involved in, in that work with the government. We're doing a workshop at UBC, as, as Brian says, a, a, an attachment to this on the Friday where the government and public sector institutions are coming together to have a conversation about student housing and the next tranche of, of investment and that kind of thing. So lots of work that we've done in the last seven years on this. And this is just the first in-person workshop that we've had since COVID. So we're looking forward to getting together and, and network and be with our colleagues from across the province and others that want to participate and total focus on student housing and how government can help support those developments through through Great. financing and grants and other things. So, yeah. Glad you guys were able to open that up and coordinate it all at the same time. That that sounds fantastic. Well, yeah, we're hearing. I'll just add quickly. We're hearing from participants that they're really th thrilled to have the, this three day event, this concentrated event, and be able to kind of maximize their investment in travel and all and time to have all of this together. So it's it's come together nicely. Is there dual registration for that, or if they register for sure, they automatically are registered for that? How does that work? The Friday event is actually intended to be for folks that are attending from the province of British Columbia, uh, from public sector institutions. So it's a government-sponsored, I guess, event and led by the government in partnership with public sector institutions for PSIs in the province to participate. So that's kind of the focus, and there's no cost except for the cost of travel and, and that kind of thing for, for that event. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, Brian, I want to talk with you a little bit more just on the mission of Shore and kind of your vision. You talked about some other locations that you're doing. Give us some feedback on what you're hearing from folks. Yeah, we are getting a tremendous response from the universities, the colleges, the private sector building housing as well. We set this up as an initiative, the Shore Initiative, the Student Housing University Real Estate Initiative with a mission statement what we found through the conversations of our prior events is listen carefully to what our speakers are talking about. It's really the goal here is to make the experience of going to college, going to university better for students to make it uh, more accessible so that they can have a better future. So that's where the, the mission statement of improving student lives comes into play. 
it's truly a mission of pretty much everyone involved in our events, in the media platform to improve student lives and then enhancing the built environment in university neighborhoods. So I'm finding a tremendous response, a tremendous level of support from pretty much the university world in Canada, as well as the college world. Folks want to have this conversation, want to engage in this conversation. It's a vital discussion to be having. And we have basically focused on two events in Canada, Vancouver West in the spring, Toronto East in the fall. We have plans to take this to the EU and have an event in uh, Zurich, October 10th for mainland Europe. And then we're again, exploring potentially East Asia, the Indo-Pacific region. So short, we'll focus on Canada, EU, Indo-Pacific. And we're in the process of growing this out. We're learning a lot about what universities, the issues universities are encountering post-COVID and how the private sector is responding. I think this is a platform that will grow in a membership that will grow. The website itself will become... Yeah, talk a little bit about the platform because this isn't just live events that you're hosting. You're really putting together a platform of resources as well, from what I understand. Right. We're building a website and the goal of the website is to be a central location for folks like Andrew, folks like Mike, to share best practices on a global scale. So Andrew might be able to connect with his colleagues in Europe, in Japan, and South Korea about what's happening with, you know, master planning with P3s and then with housing and accommodation. So ultimately this will become sort of like an alumni group, if you will, for folks who work in university planning, university real estate, and the broader student accommodation sector to, to share best practices, share ideas. We're looking to make the website as interactive as possible with uh, all types of media, pictures, video. We're looking to focus on a few key areas that we see as growing. Renewable energy is a big topic in the university planning space right now. When I say renewable energy, it's everything from EV charging installations to solar installations to other strategies to reduce carbon footprint. We're seeing that modular is a big topic as well, and we're getting traction and interest from modular development companies as a faster way to build to meet the housing crisis. We're going to be doing things quite differently here and focused on a global scale in those three areas. Again, Canada, EU, Indo-Pacific. So we're excited about this and I learn something new every day and we're getting a, a, a good reaction to this. Well, fantastic. Well, guys, thanks so much for the time. I'll make sure I put everyone's email or whatever contact information you want in the show notes so folks that are attending can get a hold of you in advance. And outside of that, any last words you guys want to share? Looking forward to this event. And uh, as Brian said, networking, uh, meeting from learning from others and telling the UBC story. So it's going to be a a great event and uh, I enjoyed today as well. Thanks for the conversation. Great. And same for me. Andrew's already out there, so he gets to see it every day. But because of the pandemic, I haven't been all the way out west in three and a half years or so. So getting a chance to see what's been done there in person and then see my friends from out west, learn more about what's going on in BC, especially in BC with the second wave of potential government funding after the first wave was so successful. Yeah, um, that'll be exciting to hear about. Great, great. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Sorry I won't be there this year, but I hope to catch you possibly in the fall. Thanks very much. Thanks, Wes. Good to see you again. We appreciate your time today. Well, again, thanks to Andrew and Mike for their time. I always enjoy talking to Mike, and it was great to meet Andrew. I think uh, we'll probably have both of them on some future podcasts when we talk about Canada. 
I really hope all of the industry leaders in Canada, at least, will take advantage of this event. You guys have some major challenges ahead of you, and you're only going to be able to overcome those if you're meeting and networking. You know, I hear over and over again that the Canadian student housing market is the same as the U.S. market 25 to 30 years ago. And that's really kind of in the context of there's a ton of opportunity ahead. And something else, you know, from my perspective that reminds me of the U.S. market 25 years ago when I got into it is that all the companies really seem to silo themselves, at least from the operation side. That's fine on the development side. And I completely understand why, but from an operation standpoint, you guys need to begin coming together and really setting some industry standards. And that's only going to happen if you take advantage of networking opportunities like this. I'm sure I probably stepped on some toes by saying that, but I call it like I see it. Take my advice or leave it. It's free. You didn't have to pay anything for this podcast. So anyway, All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to register for our monthly webinar called Shop Talk. You can get more info at shoptalk.info. We'll provide the links to that in the show notes in case you're driving and can't immediately type that into your computer or mobile device. We will also provide links for the Sure Initiative and anything else that we discussed in the podcast. Take care, everyone. Look forward to seeing you next time.